0: All right. Um, Before I begin, uh, I wanted to kind of explain uh, just a brief uh, journey that I've been on. So way back, I think in 2004 or 5, I felt like God was calling me to ministry. And for me, I I never really wanted to go into pastoral ministry. That wasn't something that I really desired. Um, But then I felt like God was calling me to that. Um, and then during the course of the ministry, I realized that God was really redefining what the nature of the ministry was. And so the way that I kind of, it was really hard for me to kind of come to a place of honesty with myself and say, the pastoral ministry wasn't for me. And it wasn't because I felt like I was bad at it or I, I didn't feel like it was necessarily a failure. It just wasn't what I felt like God was calling me to. I, fe- I felt like God was saying that, I'm a little bit more of a prophetic type of person, so I'm going to tell you what my role is going to be in your life for the next couple of weeks. I am a spiritual agitator. That's my job. My job is to rile things up, to disturb things, to make things uncomfortable. Because sometimes when things in our lives get a little too calm, it becomes stagnant. And you need to stir it up. So some of you may really like what I have to say. Some of you may really hate what I have to say and thereby connect me and say, I hate you, Pastor Paul. That's fine. That's fine. As long as it gets you to a place of really wrestling with things. Because the way that Jesus operates in our life, he brings a lot of positive, good, comfortable, awesome things in our lives. But he also agitates. That's his role. Because we are not perfect. We say that. By the way, I hate Christianese. You know what Christianese is? It's when we say things that are safe and we think we're being honest. I'm a sinner. I sin just like everyone else. That's a safe way of saying, it. maybe you have a bad attitude. Maybe you hate people. I hate people. Who says that? But maybe you do, okay? Because I know sometimes when I'm driving and someone cuts me off, I hate that guy. I'm going to be honest about that. But it doesn't mean that it's right. It means that in that moment I have to say, okay, God, I have to repent of that hatred. But I have to be honest about that. I'm saying, I'm a sinner. (laughs) No, that's not our job. Our job is to be honest. But anyway, I am a spiritual agitator. So whatever response you have, please take that up with God. Okay? (laughs) All right. So I have a question for you. Have you ever seen Jesus? How many people here have seen Jesus? Am I the only one that's seen Jesus? You've seen Jesus? I'll show you a picture that I took of Jesus. Go ahead and Phil, put that up. I've seen Jesus. Has anyone ever ever seen this picture? Has, Has anyone actually ever been there? I have. You know where that is? Where's that? Rio de Janeiro, okay, which is Brazil for the January River. By the way, just that's extra, right? Okay, Um, but anyway, I I went up to and met Jesus, and I was scared out of my wits. Right? You think that if you meet Jesus, it would be an awesome experience, right? I saw him, and I was scared, and it wasn't because Jesus was frightening. It's where he was that was frightening. Do you guys know where Jesus is? On top of a mountain, and it's not one of these mountains, right? You guys know these mountains? These mountains are cool. You go up one side, you come up. This mountain was like this. And where's Jesus? Right here. And they drive you up in these buses. And I was, unfortunately, next to a window seat, and they drive up at 40 miles an hour like this. And I'm afraid of heights. So every turn, next to my window, I was like, ah! So by the time I actually got to Jesus, I was already afraid. I was like, ah, okay. And on that particular day, these escalators take you up the mountain to the, where Jesus is. And it was windy. Have you guys ever been in wind that's like 40, 50 miles an hour? And you're like unstable and it's blowing on you. And I'm like, that's Jesus. I can't look at you because I'm afraid of heights. So I went back down. I was afraid. What does that have to do with my sermon? Nothing. What I really want you to look at, it was interesting though, right? What I really want you to look at is the scaffolding. You guys notice that? I didn't just show, pick this random picture because that was the only picture of Jesus up there, but there's a scaffolding around Jesus. And it's a very, very interesting feat. If you research some of these really magnificent buildings that human beings have made, including the Jesus in Rio, it talks about how they were constructed and also how they are maintained. And they use scaffolding. Anybody familiar with scaffolding? You know what that is? It's a temporary structure that is used to either erect or maintain an existing edifice. I remember going to Washington, D.C. one time, and we went and saw the uh, Washington Monument. You guys know that gigantic pylon that's in Washington, D.C.? And they had scaffolding all the way up. And I'm thinking who would climb up that scaffolding to clean the side of the Washington Monument? Again, I'm afraid of heights, right? So I'm just like, even thinking about it makes me sweat. And I'm just like, man, that's amazing to me, right? And, and we, we, we marvel, like, who would go up to the side of the mountain in 40-mile-an-hour wind and get up there and clean Jesus like that or maintain him or he has a broken fingernail or something up there and he's going to repair, right? And it's scary, but these guys do it. People do it, Right? So I want you to hold this thought in your mind. You have two things going on over here. You have the Jesus, and then you have the scaffolding around him. Got it? Is it committed to memory? This means yes. Good. All right. Good. I need that. All right. So what we're going to do today is talk a little bit about stuff that we need to kind of redefine in our life, in our spiritual life. Because a lot of times when we grow up, we learn things because it's easier to understand by learning simpler versions of it. Right? Like when Paul says, Hey, Christianity, it's like a race. And when you run it, run it to win. Have you guys remember that little thing? But Christianity isn't a race, it's not that simple. No one goes and says, Woo, I'm done with Christianity. No one does that. Right? But we understand that's just a little portion, a little story that helps us understand that. The problem with Christians is we lock onto it, and that's all we understand. Instead of saying, now that I got it, let me push it aside and really delve into unpacking what it really means. You got that? So that's what we're going to do here today. So, the church. We talk about the church, right? You guys know what the church is? When you say, let's go to church, what do you envision? A place, right? In Greek, it's called ekklesia. You guys probably know that. It means a gathering. It means the body. But today, in 2016, it's 2016, the church actually has two meanings. Number one, it has the institutional meaning, which is this. The building, the chairs, the instruments, the office, the copy machine. By the way, the copy machine is probably the most important machine in the church. Um, Uh, You have all these things. I didn't say coffee machine. I said coffee machine. (laughs) All right? Um, But you can make a case for the coffee machine as well. Uh, But people confuse the institution of church as the church. And we don't understand what the role of the church is. Agreed? So, the institution is the beginning, It's kind of a necessary organization that helps us work on our spiritual journey. It's there to aid us, to serve us, right? And what happens in any sort of institution is that there's a temptation to turn the institution from a servant, which serves us, to something that we serve, Let me say that again. An institution was originally created to serve us. The temptation is for us to take it and serve it. And so what ends up happening is we turn the very institution that God gifted us with into an idol. And we serve that and say, that's how I serve God. And God says, no, you serve me directly. The church helps you to serve God directly. But when you turn it around and when you substitute the church and say, i got to go to Sunday school. i got to go to Bible study. i got to give 10%. percent i got to do these things. All those things benefit the institution, but it may not help you spiritually connect with God. Isn't that crazy? And so we have to be very, very diligent in making sure that we keep the church where it's supposed to be, our servant. And we then... Are equipped to serve God. And I hate to say this, I love the music, Caroline, but ser- singing songs serves the institution more than it serves God. And I'm going to go into why I think that. But it also helps us. We learn songs because it helps us inwardly worship God, right? But the actual doing of all of this is temporary. So how does this connect with the scaffolding picture? The church in definition and in essence is a temporary structure that helps us build something that is eternal. What's the only eternal thing in this room? Us. So if in that picture, we are that building and the church is the scaffolding around us, And the church is temporary. It's never meant to exist. We all will outlast the institution of church. We're supposed to. Therefore, the scaffolding or the church must serve us and build us up into the very image of God, the immortal, the the eternal creatures that God created us to be. No one goes to Rio de Janeiro and says, Man, that's an awesome scaffolding. <laughs> Woo! That was so cool. Ignore that, Jesus. Look at the scaffolding, man. And yet what we do is we go, man, that was an awesome church. The 5,000 people there. Did you see the children's program? We, we, we laud the man-made thing, and we forget the eternal thing. How do you know a church, an institutional church, is successful? When the only thing you hear is people saying, "Man, that guy that I met was awesome. That woman, she was so cool," when you hear all about the people, that's how you know when a church is being successful. It has nothing to do with the programs. Now, the programs are great. Again, the programs serve us to become people like that, so that people see the light of God in His people, not in the building. Make sense? Here's another thing, I'm just going to throw this out there for free How do you know a church is successful? When it is no longer necessary How do you know when the scaffolding is successful? When it disappears When everything has been done And the job is done Then the edifice is finished We know it's done Scaffolding, you've done your job, good work But you're done What remains is us That's the only way it must be. Again, I'm not saying now to destroy this church. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not here as an anarchist. What I'm saying is put the church in its place. What is a church here for? It's for you to grow into the eternal image of God that God created you to be. Okay? So let's put that first in its place. Secondly, what is the pastoral staff there for? I met with Dave and... You know, sometimes when you ask questions of people and they have to think about things for a little bit, right? When you ask people, you know, Han Solo, did he shoot Greedo first or did Greedo shoot him first? Some people are like, hmm, let me think. Not a lot of Star Wars fans in here? Okay. Um, Or, you know, did Adam and Eve have a belly button? Okay, let's think about that for a second. Uh, Some people have to think, right? But when I asked Dave this question, he answered even before I was done saying the question, right? I asked him, what is your dream for the church? And before I could say church, he was like, I want my people to grow. I want them to become passionate followers of Christ. I mean, it was right there. I was like, "Woo! this is awesome. Your pastor has a heart for you to become this, in, this thing that God created you to be, eternal. Perfect in his image. and that's what the pastoral staff is there for to, to pasture you into that growth. okay? Sometimes when you're pastoring it's hard to say the hard things. And so that's why I feel like God has called me here sometimes to say things that are harder to say. So what are some things about the institution that we've latched on to as Christian practices? that sometimes cloud what the real spiritual act of worship is. Well, let's talk about this, okay, real briefly. We have this thing called the institution, and then we have this thing called the Holy Spirit. Do you guys remember when Jesus came? He made this crazy claim, right? He's like, I'm going to destroy this temple. Now, if we were to say that, if I were to walk into this room and say, I'm going to destroy this church, half of you will call 911 and say, there's a terrorist here. (laughs) Wouldn't you? Jesus said that, and they're all like, what are you going to do? You're going to destroy this temple? Because he understood what had happened in his time. The temple ceased to serve the people, and now the people have the burden of serving the temple. You guys remember that story? And Jesus said, that has to go. The thing that I created, you have turned it into a blasphemy, an obscenity, because now my people that I long for are bowing to it rather than to God. So he destroyed the temple. Our modern-day analog to that is the institution of church. Are we burdening our people with subservience to the church, or are we encouraging people to worship God? And that's a question we have to ask as leadership of the church. So the first thing, I, I, I was talking to one of my friends. He's like, man, you got to give 10%. percent you got to give 10%. He was like saying, you know, most Americans give 3% or 4%. percent we got to give 10%. That's what tithe means, right? A tenth. Right? That's the institution. Why is that important to the institution? Well, the institution needs revenue to survive. But that does nothing for us. What's the Holy Spirit demand upon our life in terms of what we are to give? Do you know? Do you know what number? Is it 14%? Is it 33%? It's 100%. Ah, I was going to do something with that 90% Jesus. It's easier for me to just say 10%. But now that you want all of it, ah, what am I going to do? How do I know this? Because Jesus never used middle language. He used, okay, if you want to follow me, deny yourself. Not deny 10% of yourself. Deny yourself. Pick up that cross. What is the cross? Instrument of your death. Ah! And follow me. Woo! That's hard. That's what he's saying. He's like, deny yourself. Pick up that cross. Follow me. That doesn't sound like 10% to me. I don't think Jesus is satisfied with 10. I think he wants 100. And that's hard. I mean, we're all now shaking. And I've just originally, now with numbers and figures, I've kind of shaken your souls, right? Like, oh no! What do I have to give up? I just bought a flat screen TV. Do I have to give that up? We don't know because we haven't lived. We haven't lived that hundred percent lifestyle yet. In the institution, what do we focus on? We focus on actions, right? I remember someone came up to me and said, "Pastor, so and so didn't come to church for the last two weeks. Are they okay?" I didn't realize attendance at church was a measure of your spiritual condition. But it's kind of this ingrained thing, right? Your actions. Oh, you said a bad word. Therefore, you must not be Christian. Oh, that person had a drink. Oh, that person smokes like a chimney. So we're focusing on actions. And for us, we define our Christianity by a set of rules that we all follow. And Jesus kind of blew the water off of that. Why? Why? In Matthew chapter 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, what did he actually focus on? Motives. He didn't say, you have heard it said, you know, thou shalt not kill. He said, I'll tell you what, if you're angry, there's something wrong there. And now he went from the action, which is, by the way, thou shalt not kill, is pretty easy for most of us to follow. Right? (laughs) How many of us go into the Bible study and say, dude, I had a hard week, man. I had to kill somebody. (laughs) No, we don't. Most of us can live up to that commandment pretty easily. But how do you go to a group that you are accountable to and say, man, I was angry? How many times a day are you angry? I'm angry. It happens. And so we have to take those motives in our hearts and say, God, I was angry. I got to repent. And Jesus said, it's no longer your actions that can guide or, de- uh, or define you or, or tell you where you're at. It's your motives. you got to look inside. And that's hard. When we first come to church, we're taught things to make us like, believe in certain things, right? What do we say? We know that God is what? Love, right? We think God is love. God will forgive you. We're certain, right? But when we actually are encountering the Holy Spirit in our lives, he requires Faith. And I don't understand why there's such a Christian obsession with knowing so much, by the way. Because we want to be certain of things. When it clearly says in the scriptures that without faith, it's impossible to please God. It didn't say knowledge, it said faith. Meaning that there are things that you don't know and you can't see and you can't prove, and yet you still believe in the goodness of God in all situations. That's faith. The Holy Spirit will grow you so that you are increasingly more and more in situations where you have to have faith, not certitude, not that you know for certain. In fact, most of us will say, I don't know, but I know that God will be good in the situation. That's my faith. The next, when God gave us the institution of church or the temple, God wrote the laws on stone, right? The Decalogue, remember the Ten Commandments? What is his desire? It's for us to no longer need an external law that governs our actions, but an internal law that governs our heart. When the Holy Spirit comes into your life, he starts etching in you the very things that God values in here. Therefore, the law on the outside is no longer necessary. If you truly, truly love someone, you won't need the commandment to not kill them. Would you agree? Right? If you really, really love someone, you don't say to them, Well, you know what? I loved you and I proved it to you by not killing you today. We don't. That doesn't even cross our minds. Because that law is no longer necessary because the Holy Spirit has come in with a whole different dynamic. The Christian church wants us to be good. You've got to be a good Christian. Jesus says, no, you got to do good. Because the fundamental dynamic of Christianity is that God in heaven saw our condition and did something about it. God wasn't happy with, well, I'm okay, I'm perfect, I'm sinless, they can do whatever they want. No, he said, it's not good enough for me to be good. I have to do something about this. And as Christ came and served us and died for us, That was the ultimate good that he had done. Christianity wants us to think in black and white. This is right or wrong, yes or no. And there isn't situations like that. When Jesus came, they brought him all these situations to test him out. Jesus, we caught this woman in adultery. First of all, how do all those men catch a woman in adultery? Were they spying on her? Right, Something was afoot. And Jesus knew, and he says, look, if you're without sin, go ahead and throw a stone at her. And while everyone knew that by the letter of the law, she was to be stoned, Jesus says, I will not condemn you. This is a gray area for me, because this area requires compassion and not force. And I will pronounce mercy upon you, because that will transform you more than me picking up a rock and throwing it at your face. Okay, And that's one of those things. I had an experience. Uh, We went to Kazakhstan on a missions trip. And things that I never would have thought about, I was confronted with there. Uh, There's a lot of uh, Muslims in in Kazakhstan. And some Muslims had converted to Christianity. And in, in some of the Muslim faith, they have more than one wife. So this one person becomes a Christian. And the question came up. Well, now what does he do with two wives? Because the scriptures clearly say what? That you were to have one wife. So now this guy converts from Islam to Christianity, has two wives. What do you do? Now how many of you guys say, you got to divorce one of them. Pick a straw. Choose a number between 1 and 10. Is that what you do? That was a tough situation. Gray area. Because there's no law that can govern that. But Christianity... Wants you to have a black and white. They want you to have an answer for everything. The gray area does one thing for us. And what it does is it makes us dependent on God every day. When we say it's not black and white. When we're dependent on only our own judgment. When we, we confess that it's gray. We depend on God's judgment every day. And you're like, God, I, here's a situation It's complicated. What do I do? That's the dynamic God seeks. Not, I know what's right and wrong. And I get to condemn you. That's not the faith. That might be Christianity, but that's not the faith. Let's go to the last one uh, where it says knowledge. Christianity emphasizes knowledge. That's why we go to Bible studies. And again, I'm not saying don't go to Bible study, but Scripture never talks about you increasing in knowledge. What does it say? That you must increase in wisdom. Because wisdom comes from multiple sources, right? Right? It comes from what you know, it comes from what you experience, but it also comes from where? From God. And scripture does say, if you lack wisdom, pray for it. It doesn't say, wait, when you become a Christian, you're going to become like Einstein. It does not say that. You will unravel the mystery of the grand unified theory. No, it doesn't say that. What it does say is, when you become a Christian, when you put your faith in Christ, you will become more like him. And God is abounding in wisdom. Those are the things that we we look at. So I want you guys to understand that while the church, as a launching point, where we focus on tithing, that's a beginning. But we don't emphasize it. We say the 10% is just a start. That 10% is to train you up from here to understand what more can I do. How many of us actually pray when we're giving in our offering, offering basket? Here's 10%. Do you want me to give more? Do we actually pray that? Because that's what God wants. Most of the time, God will say, no, that's sufficient. But every now and then, God might say, yeah, why don't you give more today? Or sometimes God might say, don't give me that money, give it to so-and-so or that organization. Do we know? Because, again, we don't want to turn our Christianity into ritualistic action. We want to turn it into a relational Dynamic with God where we're asking him Every day what is your will What would you like me to do And that takes faith Well I wanted to talk About the gospel but I don't think I have a whole lot of time To talk about what, I, what I'm going to explain to you So we'll go into that next week But let's talk about some terms that we will be using In the next couple of weeks That I feel like are misconceptions Alright and this may actually You might disagree with that So let's talk a little bit about this Um How many of you guys have ever heard that grace is free? Yeah? Grace is free? That's not true. All right? If you guys believe that grace is free, that's not true. Grace is extremely costly. It is a gift to you, but it's extremely costly. Who had to give up their life? For you to experience God's grace. Huh? Jesus. So I get offended when people say grace is free. Because it's not. Our most beloved Savior had to die for you. That's extremely costly. It's the most expensive thing that could have ever been. That the very God of all creation would lay down his life for you. Unbelievably costly. But it's a gift. Now, what's interesting is, in Romans, I'll just say this. In Romans, where we get that idea, it's called free gift. Have you guys heard that term? Paul says it's a free gift. It's a free gift. That word, or those two words, dorea and charisma, are not a free gift. It's just gifts. Our theology that wants us to think that our gospel is without cost has somehow gotten into our translations and we've made a redundancy. A gift is free by itself, isn't it, by definition? We just had Christmas. How many of you guys had killed children who said, Oh, I got my Christmas gift. Thank you for this PS4. Right? Thank you. How much do I owe you, Dad? <laughs> no one assumes that a gift is not free. Yet why is it written in the Scripture that it's a free gift? When the word in Greek is just gift. It messes us up because it emphasizes, when you have that kind of redundancy, it emphasizes the word that's in front, which is free. The grace of God is not free. It was just paid by someone else. And that should, in and of itself should bring us to our knees. But somewhere in our faith we said, oh no, it's free, and we, we treat it as something cheap. And therefore we take advantage of it instead of understanding it, all right? And that's something we can never do. First of all, guys, grace is not free. It's gifted to us, but it's not free. Someone else paid it. Second, how many of you guys believe in unconditional love? Not in the Bible. That phrase, unconditional love, does not exist. I don't believe in unconditional love. What I do believe in is unrestricted love. There's a difference. What does that mean? Unrestricted love means that God's love is for everyone. And you can come to him at any time. Doesn't matter who you are. Doesn't matter when you are. Doesn't matter what you look like. Doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what you believe. If you want to come to God, that love is available for everyone. Does that make sense? It's unrestricted. However... Once you enter into his love, he has a ton of conditions. He doesn't say, well, come here, experience the grace, and then go back and do whatever you want. My, my most favorite story in Matthew, and we'll go, you don't have to show this, Phil. Matthew 18. Do you guys remember the story of the unmerciful servant? I'll briefly tell you what it's about, okay? So there's this guy who owes God, or the king, A bazillion dollars. And you know what a bazillion dollars is? Take whatever uh, Bill Gates has and multiply it by a million, and that's a bazillion. Okay? So, So this guy owed the king a bazillion dollars. Now, I don't know how he amassed the debt of a bazillion dollars. He must have been at the casino night and day. I don't know what it was, but he amassed that kind of debt. And basically, it meant that he could never pay it back. And the king called him up and said, you need to account for this. You owe me this money. And the guy said, please have mercy on me. I'll pay it back. Please don't throw me in the prison. And the king said, okay, not only will I not give you the penalty for your debt, which is throwing you in prison, I will forgive you of that debt. So not only will I not throw you in prison, I will forgive you so you don't have to pay it back. Two great acts of kindness that he gave to the servant. Right? So what does the servant do? Turn around and go, whoo What does he do? He finds a guy that owes him a hundred bucks. He grabs him by the shirt and says, pay me back! Now, everybody who saw this was disturbed and said, king, you know that guy that you just gave that bazillion dollars to? He's shaking this other guy down for a hundred bucks. So what does the king do? Ah, that's okay. My love is free. It's unconditional. Does he say that? This part's shocking, you guys. You should actually look at this. It said, bring him here. And he said, look, what have you done? I forgave you all that debt, and here's the condition. Should you not have done the same? Is that a condition? Oh yeah, but it's not a law What it is, is I have done you a great mercy Now you go and do what like I did And show mercy That's a condition, my friends The gospel is not great news about you being forgiven of a debt And that's it The gospel is that you've been forgiven of the debt so that now you can become God's image and do the very same things to other people. That's the good news. And that's the thing that we don't tell people. We don't say, hey, you're kind of an unforgiving person. You can come and experience the forgiveness of God and then be transformed into becoming a forgiving person. We don't talk like that. We just say, come to church, hear the gospel, you'll be forgiven. And that's why we call this an incomplete gospel, because we're not telling them the whole story. The whole story is once you walk into what God has to offer, God has incredible demands upon your life. By the way, when you accept Christ, what does it cost you? Have you thought about that? What does it cost you to follow Christ? This is the beginning of the gospel that I will tell you right now. What is the only thing that you possess that's worth your life? Well, this is not a rhetorical question. I, I, I want to know if you have something that's worth your life. What's, what's a thing that you possess, the only thing that you possess that's worth your life? Huh? Huh? Your body? That's exactly right. All of us have nothing that we possess that's worth anything close to our own lives. Even if you were Bill Gates, you would not have enough that would be worth your life, right? But what is the one thing that you do have that's worth your life? Your life. You got it? That's what God has given you. God has given you your life, and that's what you possess. Now, when you come to him, and he says... I want what? I want a life for a life. That's the transe- That's the deal. I will give you eternal life. I will give you a life with God. I will give you a life of healing and redemption. But it's going to cost you your life. And if you think you can get all these things, the eternal life and redemption and healing and life with God, by only giving 10%, I'm afraid you're misinformed. It doesn't work that way. God wants a life for a life. You trade in your old, broken, sinful, run-down, God-hating life, and you trade it in for a life that God has given you with eternal life, healing, redemption, love, all these positive things. He says, that's an even trade for me. The only question is, do you feel like it's a fair trade? Because most of us as Christians live as if it's not. That's too much, God. You're asking too much. I can't do that. And that's the thing that we have to examine in our own hearts today. Before I tell you next week what I believe to be the key elements of the gospel message is, you need to decide today, is the life that God is offering you worth the life that you have right now? And were you, are you willing to trade that a life for a life? Because that's what Jesus says. I can give you all these things, but it's going to cost you all these things. You can have everything, and it's going to cost you everything. The disciples even said, Lord, behold, we've left everything, mothers and daughters and sisters and brothers and all these to follow you. What does he say? I tell you the truth. No one who has left all that will not receive that and even more. But it takes this first to come over here. We human beings are natural bargain seekers. We want to get all of that for as little as possible. And I'm telling you right now, God cannot be swindled. It will not happen. He will not allow you to purchase what is eternal and complete With something that is incomplete. You must give all to get all. And that's the real message. At the end of Matthew chapter 5, after he laid down the whole thing about an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, all that stuff, remember? He says something very, very startling. How many of you guys know what Jesus said at the end of Matthew chapter 5? I'll tell you. He said, therefore, after he's concluding all that teaching, be perfect like your Father in heaven is perfect. Do you guys know that? Do you guys know that those words actually came out of Jesus' mouth? When I first read that, when I first truly read that, I said, ah, no, that's impossible. That's ridiculous. How can we become like God? Do you guys feel the same way? Like it's an impossible commandment. Be perfect like your Father in heaven is perfect. But guess what? That's the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus said, you give me all of what your life is about. And then what comes next? You'll become more and more like God. You see, way back in the beginning where it says God created humankind, what did it say about how we were created? We were created in what? His image. That was the original intent. He wanted us to reflect Him, to be like Him. But through a series of decisions, bad decisions, we became more unlike Him than like Him. And in comes Jesus Christ, the new incarnation of His redemptive works. And He says, through Christ and the Holy Spirit, you can now go and become like Him. And that's the great news, isn't it? Not that you have a life of going to church or reading the Bible. That, that's part of it. But the real part of it is, man, every day you can become more and more like God. Because that's what he wants. That's what he wills for you. That's the only thing in our life, by the way, that doesn't experience a life death cycle. You know that, right? Most of us are born. You guys are looking up. Everything looks Cool. You look at all these things that people are doing, it's like, there's nothing I can't do. I'm in that stage where, man, I used to be able to do that, but I can't do it anymore. (laughs) So I'm on this side. Spiritually, there is no this side. We are all expected to continue to grow. Why? Because every day, all of us are shown how much we fall short of who God is. We construct these Christian standards because we can achieve those. But the true God standard is never achievable. And so what we do is we say, God, as my ultimate act of worship, I am going to every day desire and passionately desire to become more and more like you. I will fail. I will not succeed. But through your grace and through your Holy Spirit, I will get better every day. Better today than I was yesterday. Better tomorrow than I was today. That is my worship for you. And nothing pleases God more. Because Jesus said, be perfect like your Father in heaven is perfect. Is that hard to hear? Absolutely. Because it highlights in our own life how far we are from God. It does. It's hard to hear how much we're not like God. But then you enter into the grace and God says, this is how much I want you to be like me. That's the hope. The hope is not in success. The hope is in God's help. He is our hope. He is our standard. He is our call. And he's asking for everything. So what I would like you guys to do, not just today, but in the next week, is ask, are you ready? Are you really ready? Life for a life. My life for the life that God has for me. Am I really ready for that? is that worth everything that God has to offer? Is that worth everything that I now have and possess? Once you are at that place of decision-making, you make that decision, then your life will be radically different. It's no longer, I'm just going to pay for a portion of it and expect all of it. Like I said, God cannot be swindled that way. It doesn't work that way. Jesus set it up. If anyone were to come after me, They must deny themselves, pick up the cross, and follow me daily. That is it. He wants 100%. 99 won't be enough. I know 99 for most of us is good, but for him it's 100. He wants all of it. And that's the hard message. That's why when Jesus first came, so many of the disciples walked away. The rich young ruler, sell everything that you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me. What did he do? He walked away. I'm telling you right now, and I told this to my own kids, Christianity is the hardest thing you will ever do in your life. But the good news is, it is the best and greatest and most amazing thing you will do in your life. The only way you'll know, life for life. Let's bow our heads, please. God, we know all the benefits We know all the great things that you have to